0: master and my God assist me to proclaim to spread through all the earth the honors of thy name Sorrow own cease Tis music in the senses Tis life and health and peace He breaks the power of cancelled sin He sets the prisoner free His blood can make the foulest clean His blood hell for me So choice the humble poor believe glory to god and praise and love be ever ever given by saints below and saints above the church in earth and in hell so come on and sing i
1: Those who look on him
2: Are radiant They'll never be ashamed They'll never be ashamed This poor man
1: cried And the Lord heard me And saved me from Church the Son of god surrounds he will deliver he will deliver
2: them,
3: he will deliver them. family Church family, good morning. Great to see you once again. Praise awaits our God today. Psalm 65 says, so let's stand and bring Him praise and sing doxology together. Let's fix our mind on Him this morning with all of our heart. Sing this with us.
2: Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise
3: five together this morning, remembering what God has done for us and who He is today.
2: Tried my way, chasing the wind, when I'm straight.
4: worship jesus
3: together you can be seated this morning
4: well good morning church family Brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe this uh, you know past week you've been out. You're the only Christian at your school or at your place of work, and you say it's very lonely to be a Christian. And then you come to church, and you say, well, maybe you know it's not that lonely because here are my brothers and sisters, the people that know Jesus is King, and His love uh, prayerfully will permeate our fellowship. So greetings to you, uh, longtime church members. Maybe you're here for the first time, met a few uh, even last hour who'd visit our church, and you're thinking, how can and I know some of the people a little bit better. A good way of doing that is just to start to, to receive our Friday email, which outlines the things that are, that are happening. You get the sermon notes, the sermon outline. And so please do take advantage of that. You can scan the QR code or do it with a physical copy at one of the guest kiosks. But that to say, a very warm welcome to you. Uh, Youth group, uh, Aftershock is the name of our youth group. This is a few months out, but I wanted you to block off these dates. There's a winter retreat, February 3rd to the 5th. So parents and students, you wanna, you know, kind of block those weeks uh, days off with a Sharpie marker, a good thing to invite a a friend to, maybe somebody who's been asking a lot of questions. Uh, That would be, that's always a good time. Pastor Caleb and the team do a great job. So winter retreat for the youth. Discover Providence a bit more imminently here. On the 4th of December, what is Discover Providence? This is a, you know, if you're newly attending and you say, what is this church about? Are there, you know, stakes in the ground? What do they understand the church to be? What are the distinctives here? You want to attend that. It doesn't commit you to anything. It's not like, you know, once you, once you do that, uh, you know, you're off and away, but I think it's a really good first step to say you move from a tender to being a bit more vested in the church family. That will be Discover Providence, the 9 a.m. service on the 4th of December. Finally, this upcoming Wednesday evening at seven o'clock is what we have a, a Providence tradition, the Thanksgiving Eve service. The Bible would tell us to say, we're to be a thankful people. We have so much to give thanks for, not least of which is the work that Christ has done in our lives to give us a new life and hope in him. Uh, Not to mention all the little things that we take for granted each and every day. So what the service is, is we'll sing a number of uh, joyful hymns of thanksgiving, uh, glorifying the Lord. Then I'm gonna uh, share a short word from, from scripture on thanksgiving. And then what we'll do is we'll have microphones in the aisle for anyone who's here to give communal thanks. And it's time for you to think back, say this is, you know, I've not ever publicly thanked the Lord for putting this person in my life, or how he's used this church family to edify my faith, or this breakthrough in my place of work, or bringing me through a health trial. And so we're gonna do, we're gonna publicly give thanks, and I tell everyone I'm planning a short message, but if you don't share, it's going to be a long message. And I know you don't want that. So come ready, think of some props. say, Lord, I know I can t- you know, publicly thank you uh, for one thing this year to build up my church family. Uh, you know, Even this morning, I'm thinking, I'm walking in, Lord, thank you so much for the heat. Uh, you know, this frosty morning, and I'm extremely comfortable in my suit, which you know I like to wear. And so God has just you know, provided so much for our church family. So Thanksgiving Eve service seven o'clock this wednesday night now last service we celebrated two baptisms mike ryan and eric mandalessi and just as when there's a new baby born in the congregation that we get very excited about spiritual rebirths and you say well what is baptism baptism is the sign that a christian receives of what god has done in his or her life and so to embed this uh, theologically uh, both of them in a moment will give their testimonies But what shall we say then, are we to continue in sin, that grace may abound? By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So think about what Paul's doing there. He's paralleling the events of the passion of Jesus on the cross with the, the motion, the symbol of baptism that on the cross, right, Jesus died to take on the sins of the world and uh, to all the things that are darkness and death for the believer, and God raised him from the dead. Likewise, when a Christian goes under the water, even that motion of going backwards symbolizes that you've died to the world. You know, before I was a Christian, I was plowing through, doing my own thing, living for myself, tempted by all kinds of things, that we die to that in Christ. Nobody can live under the water, but just as he was raised, the Christian comes up out of the water... Uh, to a resurrected life. Now that pattern of death and resurrection is not just a historical event, as as important as that is, it's not just true when we become Christians, but it is the very pattern of life for the Christian. I'm tempted, I sinned, that goes to the cross, it dies with Jesus, it goes down with Him, that I'm forgiven, and then He comes up and He can resurrect it to life. So the death and resurrection pattern, that's why baptism is so important. So all that to say, In history, there's really no such thing as an unbaptized Christian. If you're a Christian, you're baptized because it shows the congregation and it's a reminder to us, it's a sign of the work that God has done in his life. As I said, Mike and Eric were baptized last service, but they both wanted to share with you today what God has done in their life. So Mike uh, prepared a video, so we're gonna watch Mike's video and then Eric will come up and share at the platform, okay? And so we can roll that testimony, thanks.
5: Hi, my name is Mike Ryan. As a child, I grew up in a wonderful home who, together with a family of five, would attend church regularly. I had an opportunity to learn about God and Jesus at church and in the weekly parish school that we begrudgingly attended. As I grew older and into high school, I attended church much less frequently. I had stopped going to the parish school program prior to the completion of it. And by the time I was in college, I became the Easter and Christmas only attendees that we commonly see today. While in college, I lived the worldly experience and partook in all the things that our culture celebrates during that phase of young adulthood. After graduating college, I was hired as a teacher and a coach here in Avon. And throughout my 20s, I taught, coached, and dedicated the vast majority of my time to this. During that time, I had an opportunity to live with a fellow coach and friend named Judd Lutz, who was a professing Christian. I believed I was also a Christian, but quickly learned that what he professed and what he lived out looked much different than what I understood Christianity to be. I remember two distinct differences that he and I had. One the most foreign being that he read his Bible regularly and the other was that he had what he called a personal relationship with Jesus. I thought well to each his own. You know I grew up Christian and I was told my sins are forgiven for what Jesus had done on the cross and I felt as though I was a good person and good standing with God due to uh, what I was doing. Fast forwarding a couple years and now living on my own, in my nearly my 30s, I was in search of becoming a better person. Through my search I discovered personal development. I would dedicate my time to reading and learning how to become a better man. At this time, I was also consciously searching for a man to model my life after because I had been, it had been impressed upon me. Um, That I should pick a previously lived out life, previously lived out example, um, and model my life after this to achieve um, the same or even better results. But as I studied men who I knew personally and through history, I couldn't help but quickly discovering the faults in each of them. So I would continue searching. It was around this time that I started attending church again as part of my personal improvement journey. And while there, one Sunday, I noticed a book being handed out about Jesus. It fit right into my personal development curriculum, so I grabbed it to eventually read. Sometime later, while reading the book, I came across a chapter that discussed Mark 28, and Jesus asks His disciples who they think He is, and Peter responds, You are the Messiah. I reflected on this question, and it was at that moment that I realized that it was Jesus who I was searching for, and I knew that He was the only perfect man to have ever lived. Because of this realization, I used the habits I had developed in personal development to begin reading the Bible that Judd had given me a couple years earlier. This was my first time ever reading a Bible, and beginning in Matthew, I was just blown away at what I had read, and I knew this is what I was looking for. Around that time, Providence hosted an outreach event that had several Browns players attending. Our Avon football team was invited, so I tagged along with some of our players. Several Browns players shared their testimonies at that event, and this was the first time that I had heard the gospel shared with the image that we are all born sinners, and that there's a gap between us and the perfect and holy God. Without Jesus, we cannot bridge this gap to come close to God, no matter how good we are. After hearing that, I filled out the welcome card and checked the box, noting that I was interested in learning more about this information. A couple months later, a guy named Andy Meeker called me and asked if I wanted to get together with him and another friend, Brooke Bright, to learn more about what I had heard that day. We got together every two weeks for six months, and finally, in February of 2017, I repented of my sins in my life and invited Jesus Christ into my heart as Lord and Savior. After taking my hands off the wheel of my life and handing it over to Christ, things have been a whirlwind and sometimes I feel like I'm holding on for dear life. Not long after that, I met my wife, Ava, and our first son, Grayson, was born. We now have two more boys, Calvin and our new baby, James, to join along in this ride. Thinking back on my life prior to inviting Jesus into my heart, because I thought I knew God and I was in good standing with him, I believe on the day of judgment that I would have been one of the people who said, Lord, Lord, and Jesus would have responded to me that he never knew me and that I had to depart from him. Now, today, I'm not a great person or even a good person at times, but the thing that distinguishes me from who I was before is that I'm still seeking to know and develop a personal relationship each and every day with the one and only perfect man who has ever lived, which brings me here today to profess publicly my faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior.
4: Clap for Mike.
6: Good morning. This does not get any easier the second time around. (laughs) I have spent the entirety of my 45 years knowing who Christ was, but not realizing He did not know me. God used two life-changing events, a Christian rap concert and a Paul Washer sermon to call me to him. The sum of these events showed me that I truly did not know Christ, but that there was hope. That hope was in Christ Jesus. Christ's love has removed the scales from my eyes, revealed my true sin nature, and showed me who I was without him. Most importantly, he has created in me a desire to repent of my sins and put my full faith in him and in him alone and to be washed clean in him. To say that Christ's love and mercy have changed my life would be an understatement of epic proportion. Jesus went to the cross to pay for my sins. Jesus paid my debt in full. There is no greater act of love than that. Christ's love has created in me a desire to be a true Christian husband, a true Christian father, a true Christian son and brother, and a true Christian to all those around me. To live my life for him as he gave his for me. Jesus is my Lord and Savior.
3: Mike and Eric, thank you guys for setting that example of obedience to our Lord in being baptized, and they declared what we're going to declare in this song. In the first few lines, there is one gospel on which I stand for all eternity. It is my story, my Father's plan. The Son has rescued me. These brothers declared that today. The Son has rescued me, and they evidenced that in baptism. So I would encourage anyone that's not been baptized consider doing that, to give give their heart to the Lord and obey Him in baptism, and uh, we would encourage that of you today, and every one of us that that are believers in Jesus can say the same, the Son has rescued me, and that's why we sing today, that's why we gather today. So let's stand and sing this great hymn together this morning. There is one gospel on which we stand.
2: Son
4: worship service by thinking about God, that uh, he's given many gifts to the church. Uh, So from scripture, we're able to understand God's will, what he's about, who we are, who he is. And so we've been looking at a catechism, which is an old question and answer method. It helps the church uh, form to the likeness of Christ. So we've come to question 11. Christian, what does God require in the sixth, seventh, and eighth commandments? Sixth that we do not hurt or hate or be hostile to our neighbor but be patient and peaceful pursuing even our enemies with love seventh that we abstain from sexual immorality and live purely and faithfully whether in marriage or in single life avoiding all impure actions looks words thoughts or desires and whatever might lead to them eighth that we do not take without permission that which belongs to someone else, nor withhold any good from someone who might benefit. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So you see ladies and gentlemen, too long in America that the church has pretended that it's not that different to be a Christian. Uh, that we're just kind of a mirror of what's happening in the culture. You say, actually, what's happening is something totally different, that the non-believing world will find some of the things we just said very weird. And so it's up to us to, up to, us, up to, us to say we're really followers of Jesus, and as he would shape our congregation, as he would, again, mold us into the likeness of Christ, that this will be the way forward for us, and really uh, to a non-believing world, a source of light and hope. So one more time, if we would. Christian, what does God require in the sixth, seventh, and eighth commandments? Sixth, that we do not hurt or hate or be hostile to our neighbor, but be patient and peaceful, pursuing even our enemies with love. Seventh, that we abstain from sexual immorality and live purely and faithfully, whether in marriage or in single life avoiding all impure actions, looks, words, thoughts, or desires, and whatever might lead to them. Eighth, that we do not take without permission that which belongs to someone else, nor withhold any good from someone who might benefit. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What a great vision God's given us for one another, for the church, for the world. All right, we now will continue worshiping the Lord with the gift of music, and so Pastor Jim will will lead us.
3: Sing the living hope we have in our Savior today.
2: Great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain we could not climb. In desperation, I turned to heaven, spoke your name into the night, then through the dark.
3: our voices together one more time we sing hallelujah with all of our hearts down we're singing hallelujah
2: praise the one who set me free hallelujah death has lost its grip on me you have broken every chain this
3: Worthy of our praises today. Amen? Amen. You can be seated this morning.
7: Church, let's pray together. Father, we come to you with thankful hearts. We have sung and we have heard and we profess the glorious gospel this morning. Christ has come. He's lived among men a life perfect, always pleasing you. He obeyed your law. He did what was pleasing in your sight, and it was your will to crush him. And from the cross, he forgave his persecutors. And his dying words were, "It is finished," and he committed his spirit into your hands. He died and he was buried and on the third day, according to the scriptures and according to the power of God, he was raised. And he appeared among many. He invited them to touch him, to eat with him. He came saying, Shalom. He brought peace to the nations, to any who would place their trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And so, Lord, this morning, you have given us his peace. We have also his righteousness. We have his perfection. We have his obedience. We have the love of God. We have his fellowship. And according to your promise, we also have his spirit, who lives and dwells within us, prompting us to worship and to praise and to give adoration to Christ and him alone. Of course, Father, we come as finite, flawed, forgetful sons and daughters. This is why we thank you so much, Lord, for the gift of baptism, for being able to see that you are still drawing people to yourself. Your truth is still going out and transforming hearts, dead, uh, sinful, corrupt hearts. You bring to life through the good news that Christ has come and he has done it. And so, Lord, we just praise you for the truth that we cling to this morning. Lord, I do pray for our brothers and sisters among us who are wrestling with the throes of this world, whether it, Lord, be personal struggles and sinfulness, a trial that has hit them hard, sickness, recovering from surgeries. Lord, you know the hurts and the struggles among us. And only you, Lord, can bring us comfort and peace and hope in the midst of those struggles. Father, I again pray for my brothers and sisters who are caught in the pangs of spiritual pride and do not desire to come to you because they think they are too wretched or it is impossible for them to change. I pray for them, Lord, that your spirit would draw them to Christ to remember the simple truth that they belong to him, that he has purchased them, that in his humility he came and washed feet and he desires to wash theirs. I pray, Lord, for those who feel stuck in their sin, that you draw them out. Lord, I pray you'd use our church family to bless one another. Lord, you call us to live out the truths of the gospel, not simply assent, not simply reflect upon, memorize. We're called to love one another as you have loved us Lord, again, we bring our confession to you. This is a difficult work. We are weak. We are intimidated. But Lord, help us by your spirit who indwells us to live according to that calling, to come and to love one another as Jesus has loved his church, Lord, his, his bride who he's washed in the blood of the Lamb. Lord, I pray that as we saw a picture of your great commission filled out and fulfilled in, the, in these baptisms. Um, we pray also, Lord, that you would help us to make disciples. Help us to draw nations to yourself. Use this little sliver of your body here at Providence to draw people to Christ. Help us to share. Help us to be bold. Not just to live and hope that someone sees something in us, but Lord, help us to share. Help us to be bold in our speaking the truth so that many would come and be saved. Father, I thank you for this work and I do pray that um, you would continue to draw your people to yourself, that people would be converted. Lord, that you would use the ministries of providence to bring people to your feet in trusting you and knowing you richly and then they would bless others in turn by sharing you. Help us in this work, Lord. We need your spirit. And so in that sense, we lift up all the ministries of our church. We're thankful for the outreaches that you have um, crafted. Um, we think of the Central Asian partners that we have, and we thank you for um, the Dailies and the Abuls and the Patchingers and their work, Lord, That uh, just to minister to the saints there. We just, we just bless you for this. We thank you that you've given that opportunity, and we pray that it would bear fruit for generations and that it would strengthen the churches there that they would grow up in Christ-likeness and boldly proclaim him in an area, in a region that is hostile and at the risk of persecution. Thank you for their example to us. Father, I thank you again for um, drawing us this morning. Thank you for the gift of corporate worship, and being together with glad hearts, remembering your truth, remembering who you are and what you've done. I pray for Austin, Father. I thank you for his ministry among us. I thank you, Lord, for um, the way you have just crafted him and carved your truth um, through him in such a way that he, he preaches with conviction, and he delights in you, Lord, and he loves your people. I praise you for that. That's a gift from you, Lord, and you alone. So we pray that he would speak in such a way that would convict us and move us and transform us into your likeness. That's the goal of this morning. Thank you, Lord, that we belong to you. Thank you that we know you. Help us, Lord, to know you more. We praise you together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, church, you're welcome to stand if you're able as we read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The close of the letter here, from Paul to the Thessalonians. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The word of the Lord. Amen. You can be be seated, church.
4: Thank you, Brother Ian. Thanks for living out that passage, brother, and a joy to serve with you and Renee. In what's now become a famous little quip, I'm sure many of you have heard this from the marketplace, Peter Drucker, the leadership guru said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. You heard that? Culture eats strategy for breakfast. What did Drucker mean by that? I think what he meant is that any group of people, say a business or, uh, you know, of any size really, certainly a church, maybe even down to a family, that you can have a mission that is the what you're supposed to be doing. You can have the how, which would be, you know, your strategy, how you're going to accomplish the mission. But if the people in that organization or on that team are not meshing well, if they don't uh, enjoy what they're doing, if they're not excited about the task at hand, then your strategy and your tactics and your mission are going to be in a lot of trouble that places have cultures. Hopefully, you know, you've noticed this, various places you've worked, maybe different churches that you've attended, that they have different feelings, that there are different values that are held, that you come into a place and you say, oh, it feels like this, or it feels like this, and this is what it's like to work at a place like this, or this is what this family, it's like to be with this family. So places have real cultures. And I think at the end of this amazing little letter of First Thessalonians, you'll notice today's passage at one level, you see, is this kind of an unsystematic dumping of of injunctions right it's just like then there's this then there's this then there's this no wonder the uh you know the english editors i'd like how this you know my heading says final instructions you know is that what it is you know just like here's all the stuff you ought to be doing i think to put it under a heading really paul's saying as christ followers in a church in proximity to one another this is how you interact this is the kind of uh, you know feeling your church family ought to have to accomplish the mission of making disciples so what's the mission of course making disciples We're following christ together we're inviting others to follow christ with us that we've got a lot of ways in which we do that our strategies the various ministries but what about the way our church feels i sometimes think all of you are in better position than i am to judge that so you come in during the week is it a, a warm place do you feel it's a place that you say there's good chemistry that there's a christ-like culture And then you say, well, how can we shape it even more so to be a Christ-like culture? And who's responsible for that? And I think in a way, all of us, the members of this church, are responsible for shaping, allowing God to come into our lives, to shape a Christ-like culture so that we can be the different people that God has called us to be, that we would be a kind of subculture, a counterculture, maybe a better term, of what we have going on in the non-Christian world. So that's where we'll start. I wish we had time to go through every one of these. In fact, thinking through this, I think very easily you could take a week per verse almost and say this is a practice in the local church, but let's just pick out three here. And we're talking about healthy culture, three areas in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 28, uh, for uh, matters of a healthy culture. Firstly, look at verses 12 and 13 again that we're reminded here of a healthy leadership dynamic in the church. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. If you notice, there's a reciprocity there. Uh, this is so early, this letter, that we don't yet have in the, in the Christian lexicon uh, really elders, pastors, priests, you know, that language is going to come later. But you can say he's talking on the one hand, those who are ministering in the local church and those who are in the local church, how are we going to behave towards one another? Now, I think you know as well as I do, um, American Christianity has really struggled with healthy leadership dynamics in the local church. That Americans, I'm sure every culture does, but we really have a knack for the kind of thing, you know, if somebody um, can speak publicly, if they have the right kind of charismatic uh, personality, that the local church becomes then a platform for all kinds of unhealthy things, becomes a platform for the main speaker very easily spills over into a kind of abusive, you know, spiritually abusive relationship. And that's why we have all these crazy headlines that I think, uh, you know, at least in the early church would have been crazy. You know, a you know, very wealthy and very famous. And the church is in a toxic kind of culture because everybody's afraid of the person that the institution's built around. Say, so not good. Now, you've heard me say this, and I'll say it many more times as long as God has me here. Churches don't hire pastors they don't say oh let's go out and find somebody and then you come up with the right kind of package and you say well here's the guy say that's not really the right way of thinking about it rather i would submit to you that pastors those who are over us in the lord are recognized leaders that they're those whom god has given special gifts to shepherd the people of god in a local church so you in other words you see somebody who's living out the christian faith and you, you notice the gifts that God's given that person, and then you say we recognize them as a leader in our local setting. So I'm much more comfortable with words, I think biblical words, right, that we recognize, call, affirm, and then appoint. Uh, I think that's different than hiring. So local church pastors, than those, this is a person whom God has given gifts, This person is clearly called to the ministry by what God is doing through um, the gifts that he's given this individual. And then we, as the people of God, as the sheep of his pasture, the Jubilate Psalm 100, right? That we're the sheep of his pasture would say, this person is to to lead us in this time, in this place. So leaders are recognized, not hired. And I think that's here. Take a look at verse 13. You're to esteem them, the leaders in the church, very highly in love because of their, their work the nature of their work. I always, when I read leadership books, secular leadership books, I always think, you know, this is like 2,000 years late, you know, that that all this stuff is in the New Testament. So, for example, now say, well, if you're leading an organization, make sure that the people under you don't feel that they have to respect you because of the office you occupy, but rather because of of how you encourage and can influence, right? In other words, you don't just obey the guy because he's in the corner office. Well, why do I listen to that guy? Because he's in the corner office is not a good answer. What you're saying, and, right? It's much better to say, I respect that person because of the mantle of responsibility that God has given them. That's what the Bible, so you're recognizing the, the pastor elder office and esteeming them hopefully because of the nature of the work they're doing which is countercultural and not going to be really recognized as anything useful by those who are not Christians. So notice pastors recognized, called, affirmed, welcomed by the congregation because of the nature of their work. Now, three things, verse 12, that leaders of the church, good leaders of the church, ought to be doing um, in, in the local family. First, you'll notice that there are those who labor. You see that? Those who labor among you. That oftentimes people don't think of pastoral ministry as real work. You know, oftentimes they'll be out and say, well, you preach, you know, for about 28 minutes times two. What in the world do you do the rest of the week? Or, uh, you know, the old quip that the pastor is six days invisible, one day incomprehensible. (laughs) So, uh, you know, and quite frankly, I've known some who come into pastoral ministry because it's a great job to have if you want to hide. It really is. You say, well, I'm off, you know, doing this and that and having coffee with this person. Say, it's a wonderful job to have if you want to hide. But really, pastoral ministry is a lot of hard work. It's very demanding. And I will tell you that I'm much more um, worried in our context and even in the pastors that I know in Northeast Ohio. Oftentimes, the concern is on the other end of the spectrum. It's, it's towards burnout. Uh, that they're working so hard that pastors don't know where to create boundaries. And so pastoral ministry is hard work and pastors want to invest in the church family to work tirelessly to build into the lives of the people. That's what a good pastor does. And secondly, you'll say, what about this and are over you? So to respect those who labor, they're working hard among you and they are over you. Over you, not so much just again in the org chart sense, but over here, meaning shepherding and guiding. And you press that imagery of shepherd. Say, what did a good shepherd do for the sheep? You say, well, sometimes I, I lose focus, you know, and I'm going all these different ways and, you know, paying attention. I say, wait a second here. I am a local church shepherd. What am I doing? I'm protecting and providing. Protecting and providing. Say, a good shepherd protected a sheep and provided for a sheep. What do I mean by protect? Mainly, from bad ideas, from bad intellectual currents, from false shepherds, from dangerous mental apparatus, apparati, that would come in and move the church away from what we're supposed to be doing. And I must say here, it's a very interesting thing. The larger a church becomes, the more often I say no. And some people say, well, wait a second, you've got, you know, a lot more going on now. Can't you be doing a bunch of stuff? Say, no, actually, the larger we become, we've got to do simple better. And we're, this isn't who we are. Say, that's a great idea. Even some of the ideas say, that's a really good ministry initiative. That's not who we are. I'm not, I don't think we ought to mobilize for that. You get the idea. So I think, firstly, to say, this is what we're about. This is the focus. This is the mission. And as a shepherd... Not only working hard, but protecting the people from what we ought not be doing. And then what about providing? How does a, a pastor provide for the people? Well, in and of ourselves, we cannot. We have nothing to provide. But a good pastor shepherd provides for his people with God's word. You notice how often in scripture that preaching and speaking God's truth is compared to feeding or, on the other end of it, eating. Eating that you digest God's word, that you're serving up, right? That Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. You say, you give the people Jesus, you're feeding them. And this nourishes us in a very real way. So when we sit under God's word, as we do every week, and we study it together, it's as if we're all feeding on this very rich food. You know, some, again, to say not so good examples, but some who say, well, I'm going to kind of feed the people, but not really God's word. I'm just going to give them my ideas. You say you're feeding the people kind of, you know, donuts and cookies. And where this is the real spiritual nourishment that we all need to stay on track to persevere in the faith. You know, it was along these lines that I was, you know, as a younger pastor, could easily become discouraged because here's what would happen I'd be out and about in the town, and somebody would come up to me and say, You know what? I was. I was thinking of your sermon two weeks ago, and it could, could you remind me again what you were saying up there? And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, I, I don't really remember what I was saying uh, two weeks ago. And then I said, well, I don't remember what I said two weeks ago. How in the world do those uh, in the congregation remember what I'm saying? Until I pressed, I pressed this idea of feeding and providing, and I thought of my, my dear mom, my dear parents, who were you know, in this congregation, were here last hour. And I thought, my mom prepared three meals for me every day of my life for at least 18 years. That she made my breakfast in the morning, she prepared my lunch, there was warm food at night. I remember a few of them, just by the nature of how she did things and if I was traveling later and I came home, I do remember a few of them, they stood out. But far more important is that I say every one of those meals from my mother was prepared with love and gave me what I needed to get through that day. And I think, as you press that, say, what's a good pastor doing? You don't remember everything that I say, but you give him God's word. Point him to Jesus. look unto Jesus, right We're humble, we're weaker, He increases. that's what you do. Go back to God's word. This is the real nourishment. And that as we do that over the course of our years together, that God said he'll use, God says he'll use that nourishing, right that mutual nourishment from his word to, to build us up. So give the people scripture as food. Thirdly, and this one you say, I don't know about this one, that those who are Over us, pastor elders, admonish you. Now say that word admonish is interesting. You say, is this a not a harsh correcting, but I would say a kind of gentle correction. A lot of people, when they think of church discipline, which is a real thing, or admonishment, we immediately go towards what I would call correction. um, That we've, you know come out of line and there is this, right? And then we need to be brought back in with a kind of word from the pastor and the pastor is just a a policeman out there, you know, looking to catch us, say no. Admonishment, I think, is much more formative than corrective. Think of how the word discipline is even used to say, when we say discipline, do we think that it's punitive? I've got to go to the principal's office to face the discipline, it's corrective. Or do I say, no, I'm disciplining my body at the gym. Uh, That is, it's formative for uh, the trials of this life. And I'd say the admonishing of God's people by his recognized leaders, it's much more formative of bringing the people every week in line with what God's word says. So, I often say this too, but the Reformation, that word, is not just the events of the 16th century, as important as they were, but it's really a a kind of ideal of the church to always be reforming that we're always bringing the church back to the scriptural picture of what a church is and that's how the pastor admonishes say, know we're not going to go this way or this way stay right here come back in you know christians we don't really do that we study our catechism say this is who we are that's not who we are and you bring everybody in line always reforming so think of what's the pastor doing he's a recognized leader He's not just a hired hand. Hey, here's a guy who can lead an organization and he talks well and he's led a lot of people. Therefore, he should be a pastor. No, called by God, his gifts are affirmed. Called by the congregation and is recognized by the people that he's leading. That he, in turn, will work hard for the church congregation. He will protect the people from bad ideas, provide for them by keeping God's word central, giving them a strong dose of good food week in and week out, admonishing the people back to the scriptural idea. That's what a good pastor does. He does not become an echo chamber of the culture, give the people what they want. No, you do the bidding of what God wants. That's what it means. Now, in return, Wonderfully, some joked with me this week. They said, "Are you going to make First Thessalonians five like your verse of 2023?" You know, people esteem the leaders highly. No, I'm joking. You guys do such a good job of this. I hope that as pastors lead well, that the people then find loving them and respecting them to be quite natural. And I must thank you. Not that I think that I, you know, we as a pastoral staff many flaws, but you've been such an encouragement to us even October being Pastor Appreciation Month, how you've been so very kind to us. I have a a very large drawer in my office, and it's filled with notes from all of you. I never throw out a single note. Uh, really, by this time, even three years, hundreds of notes, a, a local second grade class a few years ago took me on. They'd pray for me and they'd send me notes. They say, Pastor, we're very, very thankful for the work that you're doing. We're praying for you today. I say, kept every one of those notes. Just saw Caleb walk down here. Caleb wrote me, I got a number of Caleb's notes. Sorry to embarrass you, Caleb, but I thank God for you. And so you see the, the reciprocal relationship, what the pastor's to do, what he's not to do, and then the people in return would respect the pastors and the elders for the nature of the work that they're doing. It's a healthy leadership dynamic. Secondly, verse 14, I've put this rather generically, but are we serving one another? Have a look again at verse 14. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. There's an assumption in verse 14. The assumption is that we are embodied in a real fellowship. Now, I stress that because of the climate which we've come out of, and which we're still coming out of, of can we do church on screens? And I understand, some are at home today, that there are shut-ins, there are real concerns. This is not about that. But the fact of the matter is, is we can't really do church through glowing rectangles. How in the world will I know the faint of heart among you, whether there's a weakness, whether we can build trust, is that able to happen through screens? I don't think so. That the assumption of 14 is if we're going to do it well, that we're actually together. And ladies and gentlemen, th- this, is, this is hard now. I was talking to a, a man who owns a very busy restaurant in Rocky River this week. And he said, if you go to McDonald's, and I know because I'm in McDonald's a lot. I was just in McDonald's. And he said, if you notice the screen, there there are screens right next to the cashier. I said, I know exactly what you're talking about. The cashier is here and there's a screen here. And he says, well, people like to punch in their order on the screens because they're afraid to talk to the person behind the counter. I said, wow, you know, is that where we are? I'd rather just not deal with anybody. I'd rather not get down there kind of in the messiness. And if I have a chance, I'm going for the rectangle, the glowing rectangle before a real person. Say that, that I have nothing to say in, in that world, but in the church. May we be vulnerable, real human beings. Notice that as we do that, say I'm a weak person. I'm right here standing in front of you. I've got all my baggage and there's you. And we've got the histories together. And here we are in a way that will help us out of our depression and our anxiety, we have to pretend to be this person or that person. So I hope we can see that that serving one another entails that we really know each other and are vulnerable with one another. What about the three categories? the idol, the faint-hearted and the weak. I think, I think, we'll be one of these three at some point in our life. Maybe you're there now. what do I mean by that? Well, the idol, you see that, admonish the idol, and here the admonishes to the entire congregation, not just the pastor. But the word idol is a military term for falling out of step, for falling out of rank, if you will, to behaving disorderly. And so it's the responsibility of the entire congregation to come alongside, say, you know what? Come back into line. This is what we're about. This is what it means to be a real Christian. This is what it means to be a member of our church, that we're pushing one another to that ideal. Uh, not just uh, this, not just talking about failing to do vocational work outside the church, but really here to stay on mission, to participate. Why, why is this so crucial? Again, think of how this happens. The larger a church becomes, the fewer people serve. When our church started in the early 90s, uh, there's still a lot of people in our congregation. We're going to honor them in February. But they would say this. They said, when we were renting in the school and we had to set up everything and we were all, you know, if we were going to have bulletins, it was like everybody was pitching in. And if you had 100 people in the church, well, guess what? We got to have 90. We got to have 90 participating to make any of this work. Say a high saturation of church people serving. As the church grows, what happens? Say, well, they've hired more clergy now. So we've you know, professionalized the serving and look at all these people. I mean, I'm sure somebody, you know, somebody better at doing it than I do. And what you'll find is the same kind of 90 people. Say 100 person church, 90 serving. You have 800 person church, guess what? 100 serving. <laughs> So that, I think, is when this says, admonish the idol, admonish those who've kind of fallen out of step with what we're doing here to remember to say, hey, we're all in this together. This is what it means to be a church. We've each been given gifts. If you're a member of this church, say this was hit hard in the membership class, you've been given gifts to the mutual edification of this body, and we don't have the luxury to have anybody on the bench, but rather to say, how am I going to participate, to be in step, to walk in cadence, to admonish one another, right? bring us back. This is what the church is. How about the timid, the faint-hearted, right? Right? Encourage the faint-hearted. Friends, again, in this room, there are some in this category. There are so many things if we, you know, let our minds go there to be anxious or worried about, you know, language of recessions and things of that nature and where we're headed and energy costs. And you know the list as I do. And you say, you allow that narrative to take over your life. We feel faint-hearted and just a bit discouraged. And what are we to do there? I would call it targeted reassurance, targeted reassurance from the congregation. Hey, you know what? There are some scary things out there, but remember that God's in control. Our church is called Providence Church because God is sovereign, that he has you in his hand, that he's got a plan. He'll use even the failures and the discouraging things in this life to guide you home and to build up the people. Say that's the targeted reassurance a good church will have, to repeat, to reinforce the central truths of the faith over and over again. How many times have I said even I don't know, the last month somebody said, you know, I'm in a very bad place. My mind's going this way and that way. It seems to always come back to rehearse the central truths of the faith. Wake up at night, you say, I'm just so worried about everything that's happening. I don't know how I'm gonna... Rehearse the central truths of the faith. There is a God, he's in control, he's put forth Jesus. I've trusted Jesus, he's got a plan for my life as I tuck into him, right, that he's got it under his control. He'll use even the worst things, the failures, in my, the hard times, he can use that to his good and for the people's good and even to my good. You rehearse the central truths of the faith, targeted reassurance. Last category, the weak. Encourage the faint-hearted to help the weak. Weak, I think, is a wonderfully ambiguous term here because it can mean spiritual weakness, as we all are tempted to go back to our former manner of life, to behave as we did and our, our, can in our sin nature, our unredeemed parts of our, the nooks and crannies of our hearts that have not been fully surrendered, that God wants to, you know, or the, the evil one wants to pull us back into that culture to say that can mean weakness, it can mean physical infirmity, uh, fatigue, uh, viruses that have knocked us out to all kinds of things that happen in our church family in a little prayer meeting before the, before the service. We pray at 8.30 and there's about nine of us in the room and I was just thinking even the nine of us how many challenges there are can be financial burdens uh, problems with material. Are we a church that cares for one another in that sense? And once again I say thank you. Many of you have prepared meals when there's been illness when there have been difficult times you've done that that you've helped the week, here's, I think, main point, verse 14. A healthy church culture will move towards the needy in the congregation. Please notice, I'm not saying move towards the needy indiscriminately in Lorraine County. A lot of people, it's a good thing to do. Churches wanna help those, but in a congregation where the members have covenanted to be one body in Christ, when there are moments of falling out of step, when there are moments of worry and anxiety and faint-heartedness, when there are moments of weakness, it, the lights dim, Shaw's got to finish. Is that what's happening? Maybe it was. Uh, you know, financial burdens, unlike our impulse, right, to say, you know, I'm just going to go, you know, I can't get down there. I'm going to distance myself. No, good churches move towards the needy. Now, you're not a Christian here today. I'm glad there are non-Christians in our church every week. And you're thinking, you know, the the world really is quite an unforgiving place. That it's all performance-based and there's a ton to worry about and I'm just one person, a kind of cog in the machine. You know, what hope do I have? I hope you see in in the church as it ought to be, not the church that makes the headlines often, but the church as it ought to be, would be one where we see Jesus as king where there's a lot of healthy relationships, where we're loving one another, that we behave differently, and there's a place of mutual strength. Lastly, and I wish I had more time to talk about this, maybe in future weeks, but are we practicing from verse 19, a kind of godly discernment? Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from evil, every form of evil. Notice verse 19, I think that's the controlling line, do not quench the spirit. English editors help us out by capitalizing Spirit, that this is the third person of the Trinity. Now, please, all these theological surveys worry me very much, because here's what happens. Self-professing Christians are asked, is the Holy Spirit a person or a force? And an alarming number of professing Christians say, well, I think the Holy Spirit is kind of like a, a, a viscous gas, you know, a force that kind of, you know, shows up when... say, no, the, the Holy Spirit is the third person person of the Trinity, right? That It's a a he, it's not an it. The the third person of the Trinity, when we become Christians, when we recognize what God has done in our life through Jesus, we say yes to him and surrender our lives, he gives us the gift of his Holy Spirit. And like any other person in my life, I can push that person down and say, no, I'm not going to listen to your influence on my life, or I can allow that person to become an abiding companion, which is what the Spirit of God is. He's an advocate. And so Quentin Touching the Spirit would mean having the Spirit of God play a diminished role in your life, but when we have Him, we have all of Him, and our job is to surrender and listen to the voice of the Spirit. Notice then, verse 20, it's put right in conjunction with not despising prophecies. What does this mean? What were the Thessalonians doing? Well, you remember prophecy... Is a word spoken truthfully about what God is doing? A great place to, to think about this this week, First Thessalonians 14 and verse 13, verse three. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So prophecy in the, the New Testament era was words spoken through the gifting of the people in the church to point people to God and to build them up in the faith. So you think what's happening, presumably in Thessalonica, is that you had people claiming to speak words from God and were getting them all off track on matters of end times, so it would seem. And the Thessalonians said, you know what? We're just not going to listen to anybody saying truthful things about God. Paul saying no that you pay attention to the prophecies, that is the word preached, that will form the people and bring you back uh, to to Him, put right in conjunction with the Spirit of God. You see, the Spirit of God and the Word of God are right in conjunction. Some Christians, when I talk to them about their pneumatology, that is their understanding of the third person of the Trinity, they they seem to think the Holy Spirit exists to give them special experiences. Um, The Holy Spirit came, and I had like this fantastic spiritual high, and you're thinking, well, well that, you know, what does that mean? Say, so always in Scripture, the Spirit of God and the Word of God work together. The Spirit of God's job is to point people to Jesus, to say, he's the one that you need. Jesus says, I send the Spirit to convict you and admonish you and protect you and to steer you back to the truth. So the Spirit of God and the Word of God, don't quench the Spirit, don't despise the words spoken that is God's Word to bring you into line that they work together, the Spirit and the Word. And lastly, friends, I don't say this enough, but I hope you know and you must know that we are always to test everything against the plumb line of Scripture. Can you see that? Test everything. Don't despise the spoken word to build you up, but test everything. How do you test anything without a standard? Well, we do have a standard, and the standard is God's word. So every week here, we read the passage. We study the passage together, and I hope everyone goes home and thinks about it more, say, this is what I heard today. Is this what this is about? We're going to sit under it and work it out because that's a healthy church culture. Friends, a promising last word then that we can be left with as we close this little letter, that Paul would pray that, the, that God would sanctify the people that has set them apart to be like Jesus. And you'll notice verse 24 he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. In a way, a close resembles chapter 1 and verse 4 For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Remember when we talked about that? That here we are, weak creatures of God, each with a lot of our own fleshly impulses alive in us, and we've been called to live in such a countercultural way where we love each other. In the manner that's laid out here, what chance do we have? Very little but by God's work in and through us, that as we yield to him, as we yield to his spirit, we don't want to quench the spirit and silence his voice, but say, Holy Spirit, come, have your way among us. That as we elevate God's word and listen to what he says and allows the spirit to move in and through us, that God will be the one who makes our church uh, what he wants it to be. So church family, think about our culture How can we all make it the place that God would want it to be? Healthy leadership dynamics, serving one another, admonishing one another, encouraging, helping, and last of all, to remember that we practice a godly discernment, testing everything by his word. So I'll pray and we'll sing our final hymn, a famous hymn. Father, help us to see this last section for uh, what it is, help us to understand. And as we can gain a glimpse of the picture of what a good church culture is. Lord, to, to get there on our own, we, we can't do it. But the promise that you will surely do it as we surrender to you. That as we say, this is your church, it's not, not really our church, but you've given us one another as a gift to encourage us on this faithful journey. So help us to move towards one another to, um, again, give uh, your hope and your light. May it be on display to those who so desperately crave it. So as we declare this great truth now that it was your grace that saved us, may we rejoice and delight in your work in Christ. Amen.
3: Amen. Let's stand and sing this great hymn together, church family. that yeah.
4: Maybe don't uh, greet with a holy kiss, but you can do the 21st century uh, equivalent with a smile and a handshake, all right?